0: Everyone, we are excited here at Above the Full to have Chuck Letty joining us. He's a freelance brand storyteller. Um, Truth be told, I ran into Chuck. I met Chuck about five, six months ago um, at a conference here in Boston. Thought he was great. Loved what he had to say about the creative process and um, said, hey, we got a podcast, you should should join up. And um, six months, it took six months. It took six months because Jeff and I are awful at scheduling and um i'm i'm chuck i'm just happy you were patient <laughs> and, and thank you so much for uh for coming on board um uh before we get started if you don't mind a quick intro a little bit about yourself um maybe an insight into some of the brands big uh brands you've worked with in the past
1: well francis first of all i'm glad that you came up after um i, I gave the talk and invited me on to the above the fold uh podcast happy to be on with you and with jeff uh, to talk about storytelling. Um, And as you mentioned, I'm a brand storyteller. So I help my clients. I I currently have seven clients, but I've I've worked with dozens of clients over the years. Um, I help them connect with their customers um, by crafting stories um, that show the impact of their customer's products. Um, So my clients are in marketing technology. um, So they're MarTech uh, companies. Um, I have a couple that are in higher education. Uh, One is MIT um, here in Cambridge. Uh, One is Ohio State University. Um, I also work with various kind of software companies. I've worked a long time for ADP, which is the HR software company. Um, I've worked for agencies. And now I work on my own. I work directly with clients. Um, So um, that's a bit about me. Um, I've been doing um, content marketing since 2012. I was a journalist before then. I wrote for the Boston Globe, the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm working as a journalist, and I still use those journalist skills as a content marketer. They're extremely useful. So that's a little bit about me.
0: You're in uh, good company here, um, Chuck, because you're also talking to a recovering journalist and myself, and um, Jeff is from San Francisco, so he's familiar with the Chronicle. questions whether or not he reads it. I don't know. Hey, what's a, uh, what's, a we'll what's a recovering,
2: what's a recovering journalist? I don't get, what does that mean?
0: Basically it's just someone who was in journalism and is, you know, try has left it and, you know, still misses it every once in a while. That's basically what that means.
1: But you, I mean, you I gotta saying? say the tool, the toolbox of a journalist is so useful in marketing and content just to, to put that in, into your brain, Francis.
0: I, I agree. Um, and in many ways, um, understanding how a story is crafted and the types of different angles that you learn in journalism um, absolutely emerged into uh, and did content marketing and is extremely helpful. Um, one of the um, as you were listing through you know all the industries and different clients, one thing came to my mind, um, has there ever been is there an industry that you've written on, that ever since you said never again. I'm not I'm not going back in there because it's just not it's just not for me.
2: Please tell me legal. It's got to be legal.
1: <laughs> you know what guys, I have to admit I'm a recovering lawyer. I graduated from <laughs> Boston College Law School in 1991. I practiced bankruptcy law for 2 or 3 years and I wouldn't go back to that. <laughs> <laughs> Content for legal. I haven't done that yet and I won't. So, there's one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, all the stories we have about, uh, le- uh content for legal. It's, uh, <laughs> oh boy. Fair enough. Um, so Chuck, explain you, uh, on your website and even in, in, your intro, um, you position yourself as a brand storyteller. Um, why, why is, why is that important? Why is that phrase? Why is that term important? How does that set you apart from honestly, freelance writer, you know, professional freelance writer, which is a term that's overused, but so why, why use that?
1: I mean, it's a great question. I mean, you need to be the one that clients are looking for and you need to position yourself at a higher kind of end of the market. Um, and the way to do that is not to say that I produce content, that I'm a content developer or content creator. Those are kind of generic labels that we use now. Um So I see content as kind of information put into some kind of context, but I look at content the the way that I craft it, I'm putting it into context of stories. So I'm, I'm kind of looking at a challenge and then looking at the ways that, you know, my reader, I can help my reader overcome those challenges. And there's a story arc to it. I think of it through a story arc of like challenge and then ways to overcome that challenge, kind of having some conflict around the pain points um, you know in a b2b piece of content and then how do we overcome those pain points I'm um, using my clients as a guide as a kind of obi-wan Kenobi or a mentor to help to help prospects you know do a better job and and, and get promoted and, and to help you know the target audiences um, find what they're looking for which is to reduce that pain and to do to do better work and to get promoted and to be happy I actually use the phrase be happy in my, in my website, this is the goal that I'm trying to achieve, to have readers be happy and to have them working better.
0: Does that help? Um, I mean, does that kind of uh, shock, I guess, clients or prospects when, when you're talking about, you know, reader happiness, I have to imagine that might be something that doesn't occur to them.
1: <laughs> what it comes to them is their products and the features of their product. So I'll, I'll have software companies where, you know, everyone's got their head down and they're they're pushing out the software and they're deploying the new the new features. And it's, it's for me, I, I need to understand what they're deploying, but it's also like, what is the impact of what you're doing on the life of your clients? So I'm the one that kind of scares them by asking like, what is the impact of what you're doing on your prospects and your clients? And I come at it from that outside perspective. Um, and over time, they see the value of that.
2: So, how do you explain feelings to a left-brain person in a way that makes sense to them? Seriously, um, no. It's going to have impact on the
1: prospects on their buying decision. So, if you engage their emotions, that will change their behavior towards like metrics, towards KPIs, KPIs. So, so uh, we're getting the revenue through the door that you want. But I'm doing it in a way that I'm connecting to the emotions of our prospects. And by the same so- time, I'm telling. I'm telling about the features. I'm telling about the new software. But like, it's also from an an emotional
2: perspective. We blend those. So basically you're converting emotions into ones and zeros and dollar signs (laughs) so that it can be decoded by us left brain people. Makes sense. You know,
1: that's a great answer, Jeff. I'm going to borrow that. (laughs) (laughs) You got it. I mean, because you need to do both. Like, it's really powerful when you blend like rational metrics and numbers with like, an appeal to the human heart when you pull both of those together like you get a lot of weight behind the content and that's what i try to do like not be either or but like let's put both and push that weight onto the client onto the reader and, and that has an impact that moves the ball on roi yeah. and on metrics and all. <laughs> we try to do that i
2: think that's a good point i think that's where a lot of digital marketers fail is they get stuck on one side or the other. Got, you have a robot on one end and then you've got like a stuffed animal on the other end. So, sorry, Francis. I just accidentally referred to you. You're not a stuffed animal. I love you, but
1: uh, I don't have a stuffed animal either. I like the data people too. We need them. Like, cause they're supporting me. You know, I'm making yeah. that emotional appeal at the beginning, but when I'm digging in to like the offering, and the value proposition of, of the product, whether it's software or technology, I need that data to support the storytelling that I'm doing. But but I'm beginning with an appeal to, like, the pain or the, the change yeah. or the impact. I'm coming That's, from that point of view.
2: It's always an uphill battle, too, because when you're working with the, the C-level execs, on a, I'm predominantly, I got to say, I mean, I'm pulling the statistic out of my ass, but it's going to be at least 90% left brain. Right. And unless you can make a, a strong case for a return on investment, money, breaking it down to ones and zeros, you, you're almost like talking to a wall. Yeah, like you're speaking a different language. Jeff,
1: you're exactly right. So, two of my clients are in marketing technology right now. So, I'm constantly writing about marketing attribution. So, I'm constantly yeah. writing about how do marketers talk the language of the business, even if that is a technology business? So, how do they speak and convince the C suite? that the activities that the marketing team is doing is leading you know all through, all the way through the pipeline to ROI at the end and using yeah. the technology so I, I actually have a pretty good understanding of that technology how it works but that's not the special thing that i bring to it the spe- what i bring to it is the storytelling
2: mentality yeah.
1: and that's yeah, the extra that i'm right. giving
2: but but you have to speak that language in order to even get your get your case made and get your work done
1: I mean, if you're not, you're making a mistake. As far as I'm concerned,
2: yeah, yeah. you blend so, it too. You blend it, Francis. You need to dig into Google Analytics. That's what we're getting out of this.
0: <laughs> I don't like how this how this flipped on me, man. <laughs> but no, um, you uh, no, it's it's a valid point, and I was I was gonna say it must be. It's, I know it's a struggle when the creative person is so full on the idea where this is this is how it's gonna feel and this is what it's gonna look like. And then they're up against the question: How? Where does the ROI? How does this matter in terms of the in terms of the chart that I'm looking at? Or how does this matter because of sales? And um, if they don't have that answer, yeah,
1: that duality or that dualism is false, as Jeff said. You can't be the. What did you say, the teddy bear or the other one? You can't be one or the other. <laughs> robot. You got to have a
2: ro- robot or a teddy bear.
1: Robot or a teddy bear. Right. You know, there's great books out there. I recommend a book called "The Fuzzy and the Techie." I don't know if you guys have read that by Steve I forget. Chuck. it's a really good book, Um, and it's about this blending of technology and the kind of humanitarian or a storytelling focus. And the best businesses are doing storytelling and also bringing technology to the table. Uh, It's you can't do one or the other. So uh, that's how I see the future, and that's the opportunity for me as a storyteller. Because I step up as a storyteller, but I'm going to bring the other stuff with me in my. In my toolkit or in my backpack, whatever it is.
2: Yeah, I have to agree with that too. And I, th- I think part of the problem is that it's not very clear at first. When you come to the table and say that quality this or quality that is going to result in some sort of return down the road, it really does mean down the road. Like it is down, down the road. And it's not certain You know, Uh, so it's kind of it's kind of hard to pallet, especially in in an industry that's still kind of emerging, like content marketing, where some of the old school folks don't really get it and they really haven't seen those types of results. So it almost feels like uh, it almost feels like snake oil to them. You know, it's like, well, what is this? I don't trust it. It's an unknown quantity. And then especially if you get into some of those classic industries that are well behind like legal, we just. Tore them up earlier. Might as well just keep digging into them. Legal, um, real estate—that's a usual suspect too. They're usually way behind, and they get stuck, stuck in there. Oh, we can't change our messaging. We can't, you know, just really, really rigid. Um, they, yeah, some of these industries just get really, really stuck. And the ones that do well are typically the ones that, sorry to the older folks, but they're a little bit younger, younger than me, right? And they have an understanding for how these things actually work because I think they were probably raised with it more and they've seen it more often in their lives and they understand how one can play off the other, how art can play off of uh, metrics and lead to good results.
1: Absolutely. And I try to talk in a language where trust is what we need to optimize, customer trust. And that's a long-term proposition. You don't get that in one blog post. It's like customers see value in a blog post, they come back again, they come back a third time. And over time you're building trust. And that's the intensity or the depth of the relationship rather than you got you know so many clicks in one. Like you're looking at a long-term uh, focus where trust is there. And that's where you can unlock the ROI over time, the lifetime value of that customer.
2: Back to the original topic, it's telling a story, really. It's it's a, a continuity of a story, too, from the first blog post that they reached to the ebook to the video that they watch—it's all telling the same story, and it's adding layers of trust to the brand to a point where they're like, "Okay, I want to buy into this story." You know, and they're really buying into a story more than a product or a service. They're, they're becoming part of something that they're.
1: The hero of that story is the customer. If it's good content, it's not the product. It's not the feature. It's not the 3.1 version of whatever. It's not that.
0: That's actually interesting because I've, I've, I've seen um, blog posts or case studies where it's actually the service or the product that's kind of getting highlighted as this is the thing, you know, that's going to change. It's, it's interesting to hear that it actually shouldn't be, it should be the customer and it's, it's the thing that helps them become the hero. Yeah.
1: You can't talk. I I never try to talk about myself except on this podcast, but I don't talk about the product or my client. I don't want to be talking about that in a, in a, in a blog post or a white paper it's what's the impact again what's the change stories are about change and impact and the customer is that hero we can be a guide we can help but that's that's our role
2: yeah i've been harping on this for a long time it's i think where most companies go wrong and a lot of times it's b2b companies they just get stuck in their own way and they just want to talk about themselves and they just get terrified to to talk about something that, that feels out of their out of their comfort zone which is themselves like nobody wants to read your your press release, nobody cares. Like and, and no and no and nobody wants. Nobody's going to read that strap line that you put at the bottom of an article. That's you facing. That's not customer facing. Nobody cares.
1: And this and this is why I have a career. What you just said, Jeff, is the basis <laughs> of my career. So I, in a way, I'm happy about that. I can't complain.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Chuck, with all the advances and 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 different angles and different strategies that we have in digital marketing, and even non-digital, like just the ways companies have advertised in the past, what do you think, why do you think it's always stories? You know, from time and time again, it's the stories that engage humans, that is always a thing that we're drawn to, it, regardless of the medium, you know, be it book or magazine or YouTube video now.
1: You, you, hit, you hit on the right word, which is human. So we're talking about the appeal of emotion, of values, of, of lessons for us to learn. of of maybe inspiration um, of something that can guide us in in the way we move forward in the future of giving comfort. Um, So stories are the things that kind of we desire to give us a sense of where we belong, to give us a sense of meaning. And so like the product specifications, the, the brochures, you know, these things don't give us a sense of meaning, except that you want to sell me your software. But that's not doing anything for me. Stories are like, connecting the emotion, the values, the change and the impact to the product. And that's why people remember stories more than like the twenty five features that you talked about in your you know your brochure. Nobody remembers those.
0: But they'll remember the story that was wrapped around it.
1: The story exactly the story is a framework or a, a kind of scaffolding where people will actually remember what's inside that scaffolding. Whether it's data or anything that's like information will be remembered. the staff holding of the story because of the emotion so that's the magic of it right there
2: can can you give me an example of a brand that you worked with where they had uh what seemed like a really like a really rigid uptight type of uh like brand story or um or just like or or, uh just guidelines just like a, a story guidelines or even non-existent where you where you turn it around and gave it some sort of life what that look like? I worked
1: for an ERP company, um, and the, it's actually well, it's, it's, it's a German company. The headquarters was in Germany, but I worked for the United States. Um, they, they put USA on the on the name, so it's like it was in Virginia, and it's the U.S. base of this German ERP company. And they were translating the content from Germany into English and putting that on the on the website, and it was horrifying to, this was not good content. I'm not gonna mention names, but it just wasn't working. Um, and it wasn't, it was again, about us. It's about us, our product, the new features of our product. But again, nobody cares. So it's like, you know, right. I started to think, how are, how are these tools, whether they're apps that connect, kind of offer um, the capability to be mobile. So you can, you can use a mobile app on your phone to like understand your supply chain or understand your production volume, or understand your workflow through your different processes. So how does that change the life of my customers? So then it's like, oh, they can work in wherever they are. So they can move, they can visit a client, they can visit a potential customer and be in a hotel and still update the data related to new orders or related to the customer database and and work um, remotely. And so that enables them to do other things like visit customers, go face to face and have lunch with customers to be more effective. So like the mobility of that, of the software, um, frees them up to, to do more value added type of things, human things. So this is the kind of thing that I brought to that ERP client. They didn't even realize that the products could liberate people to be more effective. So again, that outside in perspective that I brought kind of helped them think about it in a different way. You know, but also explaining, the, obviously, the software and how things work and getting on the phone, interviewing their internal experts who, who developed the different products and the apps and all of that. I mean, that's part of it. But then bringing something extra, which is like humanize it, explain the impact. Um, you can always do that. It doesn't matter how boring the product, even a legal, I suppose, a legal situation that might be possible.
2: Do you have a song that you play when you're writing? Francis plays... Plays the soundtrack from, uh, from uh, um, Mad Max, Fury Road. Mad Rose, Max. Which is a, a pretty I good... I can't listen to music. You can't listen to music. Do you put on noise-canceling headphones, or what do you do? No. Silence. I need oh, wow. silence, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: I really, I get so immersed in it, and yeah. I, I don't want any noise, so I'm, I'm one of those people that, like, needs the silence, and I'm totally, like, thinking, and um, I can't have music, because then I start listening to the music, and then I, it pulls me out of the content. I want it to be immersive. That A writer needs to immerse in what he's doing. I mean, everybody's different.
2: Not Francis. He removes the silence and adds as much noise as humanly possible.
1: If it works, <laughs> I mean, I can't second... If it works for him, you know.
0: Okay, here's the context, though. Um, when Jeff <laughs> chats me and tells me, oh, crap, we need a summary for the podcast that we did three weeks ago, um, and I need it in, like, you know, ten minutes, that's when I put on Mad Max Fury Road, and I play one in particular song. I think it's um, "Brothers in Arms" or whatever from the movie, and um, that just gets me going because then I, I imagine like I have to get this done in five minutes, and then it's just whatever I can muster up um, in the in those five minutes. The second the song's over, I just send it to Jeff. I basically just say the song's done. Here you go. Um, but what Jeff's getting at, there's an energy to it, yeah. But um, but but the other thing that Jeffs get because I I do actually do that. I do put on music. Um, but it honestly, it's, it's for a specific tone or voice. And this is a good segue into something else I wanted to bring up. Because when a client in the past has asked about, um, you know, we like the content, but we wish the tone or voice was different. And um, sometimes, if it's a specific tone that I already know that they want, I'll put on a specific song. And it's, not, it's usually a song from a movie soundtrack or, or something like that that gets me in the right frame of mind. Um, and that's the thing that helps me. And I'll put that on repeat because for whatever reason, that song and whatever tone or voice in my mind is, is kind of connected. Um, so that, that helps.
1: I'm going to say something that's going to freak you out a little bit. Um, when I'm writing, right. there's a music There's a music to the writing. So I'm listening. Hmm. when I, As I'm typing the words, in my head, there's a kind of rhythm and a, a musicality as I'm writing um, the post. So I don't need extra music kind of getting in the way with, with the music of, of the prose uh, that does actually it, happens yeah. I'm writing with with my ear I need my ear free to listen to the prose that I'm
2: writing does it come out like uh like can you actually hear tunes like like is it an opera is it like a, a 2000 screamo band what what kind of music are you hearing
1: <laughs>
2: it sounds like me I mean that's the corniest answer but it's uh, like
1: okay. it's it, it's something that feels comfortable to me and, and I know when it's off it's a kind of tuning device where I'm listening to it uh, and I know, oh, this doesn't sound like me because I know what I sound like. You know, I'm 53 <laughs> and after writing for god 40 years, I, I know what I sound like. So if uh, it's jarring, I know, oh, I need to go back and like, cause that, I can hear the rhythms off. Yeah. So that's a weird, I, uh, but that, that, I work
2: that way. I understand what you're saying. I, I guess I kind of write in rhythm too and I can detect with my rhythm is getting clunky and mechanical. And it, it's almost, you can you almost can start to tell as you're writing. It's almost like there's no, there's no flow to it. It's just chunky and fragmented and not really, uh, just flow, free flowing. Yeah, I, I kind of get what you mean.
1: And usually at the beginning, because you're finding your way in, but you know you get through the clunk and when the clunk is done, then you're, you, you're finding that rhythm maybe five minutes after or 10 minutes after. And then, okay, I'm in it. And then you go for a couple hours or three hours. And you're hitting the rhythm.
2: When you get stuck in that that rut where you're kind of clunky, do you just power your way through it, or do you just pick it up another time? Oh, you do. Is that a is that a writer's technique where you just power through it and make it happen, and then you just kind of? I, I set the expectation because I know I'm gonna revisit it tomorrow,
1: so I'll try to power through it and get the best I can do in that time frame, two or three hours, and then I'm gonna sleep on it. So no matter what, I know I'll come back at it the next morning and like. If it's 85% there, the next morning I'm going to bring the other 15% to get it to where I want to go. So there's a confidence in my own workflow, in my own processes. And I just I believe in those and I sit back and, okay, I believe in my process. It's, you know, 40 years of writing, you get a process. You just do the process.
0: And I think that idea of like editing yourself is always something that's that's missed with a lot of writers. Like a writer will try to do everything at, at, at the first draft. And not realize that, you know, some of the magic, most of the magic actually happens later on, that last 10% when you're going over stuff. And and you realize, oh, this song, exactly, this song is off-key. It doesn't sound like what it's supposed to sound like at all. Um, that's where it actually happens, when you kind of redo everything or, or move through it. And
1: my clients know, like, I'll share the Google Doc with my clients, and no matter how many stakeholders are in, like, they see that I'm tweaking it. Like, I'm going back, I'm tinkering, like, you know... After I deliver it, I go back three more times, four more times, and I'm tinkering. Like it's in my head, I want to go back and like let me read that again. And did I do I have the rhythm that I want? So I'm constantly tinkering until the client is like ready to publish it. And even then, even after they publish it, I'll be like, can we change a one one thing? So I'm that kind of writer. Who was it that said write while
2: write while drunk and edit while sober? Who was that? (laughs) Is that um, what is it?
1: Bukowski, Charles Bukowski.
0: Uh, that sounds about right Hold yeah. on. Hold on. I'm gonna Google
2: that. Uh, it could have been Jeff. Right drunk and it's sober said Ernest <laughs> Hemingway. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's actually uh, kind of interesting. Some some of my better writing is usually done in the evenings, and it's usually after a beer or two. My writing on caffeine is completely different. And it's frankly, it's shit. My writing sucks when I'm on <laughs> caffeine. But yeah, but if I sit in a bar and I have myself a nice, you know, a nice fancy uh beer it, it it gets a little bit better the edit it, it looks i mean the flow is good it needs to be edited because it's it's absolutely crap and there's misspellings everywhere but like the feeling and the emotion is 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 much more there if i have a if i have a drink first
1: the yeah. feeling and the emotion are are 90% of it <laughs> cuz you know it's easy to get that rhythm but the emotion the color that little extra flash ah, that you, that's, you maybe you maybe you know that's that's special that's why you're a storyteller and not like a Content provider, or whatever generic term you want, that little extra is necessary.
2: Yeah, that's all gone. If I'm on caffeine, uh, if I'm on caffeine, you can read it and you're just like, "Oh, you're just angry." <laughs> <laughs> it just comes off aggressive. It just comes off way too aggressive. It's like the steroids for writing, for me.
0: Right. Oh, so, so you're I'm on you're on caffeine all day then, because those are the types of emails and chats I hey! get.
2: From- hey, <laughs> no, you just. <laughs> I, okay, so you might notice that we need some serenity here. I'm not a novel writer when when it comes to when it comes to emails, one line, two lines, and you've lost me. Just, just <laughs> Francis likes to write me these diatribes, assuming that I'm going to read them.
0: Right. Oh boy. And then
2: I'll send him an hour long video, assuming that he's going to watch that. So touche.
0: Yeah, yeah. We just we torture each other that way. <laughs> Chuck, talk about when you and a client aren't on the same page, and and in particular, maybe even with voice, because I've had this experience where something's something's written, and the client, the client isn't even just saying anything specific. All the client says is, you know, it's fine, but the voice is off. Um, what's your reaction there? How do you, yeah, how do you how do you uh, how do you deal with that?
1: It happens. It it does happen. I'm, I was going to say it happens a lot, but actually, it doesn't happen that much. Uh, you need the client to help you to understand mm-hmm. and. In terms of what voice are they going for? So I'll, I begin with the strategy. So I need to understand the strategy, and then I need to know who their personas are. So who are they hitting with this content? You know, who's getting this content, and what are the pain points and the, the needs, the wants, etc. The psychological profile of that persona. I need to understand that um, not just in a data driven way, but in a way where there's empathy on my side for all of that. You know, what the client goes through with, with the potential. Customer is going through. So I'll need to know that first. But if the client isn't able to help me in terms of like, if they're saying this is wrong and you fix it, you know, I have a problem with that client because this is not helping me. Um, So, like, I'm willing to be flexible and I have a toolkit where I can be flexible. But if you're not capable of helping me, then that help isn't going to to happen. Um, Over time, I'll have a problem with that client. I tend not to work with that client. I want clients who can articulate what they're trying to do who the customer is, and what the pain points of those customers, and then let me do my work, which is the storytelling. That's let me ask. do that.
2: I'll tell you don't right force now. me to do
1: your strategy. Don't make me make your personas and your strategy. That's not my role. And I'll tell them that.
2: That's a big ask. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. Now, you don't run into many clients that have those things ready. Or can I exactly. Or maybe, you know, I could talk to a salesperson. Uh, I'm
1: going to need some... If they don't think the tone is right, they're going to have to need to explain why. It's just, it's, you know, I would do the same. I have the same obligation if I don't like the tone. I need to explain why. Um, So it's a mutual thing.
2: Well, Francis, talk about that because you've you've got for over ten years a lot of that kind of stuff. the The tone isn't right, but I can't explain why I can't articulate what's wrong. I'll just I know it when I see it. Is the, the feedback right? <laughs> like, what? Where do you go with that? How do you? When, when somebody, somebody hands you what's the music you,
1: that, that you listen to, Francis? I'll put the music on now. I'm getting.
0: <laughs>
2: when somebody hands you uh. that flaming bag of crap, what do you do with it?
0: well i you know that's what i, when I that's when i typically yeah, i count to ten i text you jeff I, there's all sorts of uh, profanity <laughs> that happens i i will say that i think um <laughs> um i mean chuck i think that the difference is that in one situation if it gets really bad you can walk away you know you basically say i'm a brand storyteller i'm out <laughs> screw you guys um whereas in my situation here i'll i'll be up against a client who has all those same concerns and I'm in that room with them and I can't leave. I'm not in the position to be like, we're out and I'm going to fire you as a client and, and, and so on. So in those situations, I've had to, uh, because we're in that same room, I have to kind of start asking questions and maybe even drop all the marketing jargon and just start talking to this person about like who, what matters. And one of my favorite questions is, you know, what is, what is this, what is the reader supposed to feel at the end of this? You know, you're talking about this white paper or this ebook, you know, but at the end of this thing, how are they supposed to feel? What are they, what do you want them to do? You know, are they supposed to say hi to you later? Are they going to click a button or whatever? And it gets into this conversation of like, that, that opens them up. Basically it opens them up and they say, Oh, you know what? I want them to buy this, or I want them to understand this. And then suddenly you you start realizing, or maybe they even start realizing, oh, this is what the kid meant about strategy or or whatever. Exactly, exactly. We want to be a
1: a resource. We want to be an advisor. We want to be like a credible source for information. Whatever it is, like, tell me. I need to know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, But Jeff, you're right. (laughs) <laughs> uh, we've said that I know a lot of our uh, directors have said that same exact phrase and I think it works you know what is it 40% of the time it works 100% of the time um but it doesn't uh it's not always not always the way in um with the um going back to the um Just in terms of other mediums, you know, other stories and other ways of when you're when you're crafting something um, and given all the different ways that we can tell stories now, you know, uh, social video and everything. Do you have that in your mind, too, when when you're when you're crafting something, how it can be transitioned or how it can evolve into something else and another piece of content?
1: It's so important. And it's such a great question, because I think we can't be one dimensional as storytellers. So there's there's a burden to go out and find out other mediums of storytelling. So I'll talk to graphic designers. I'll talk to filmmakers. um, I'll I'll study. You know, I take acting classes. I do live storytelling at the Moth. I write. You know, I do essays. So we all have to explore the different mediums and how they can work together. Um, I mean, sometimes I'll write a story for a client and then I'll go on the shoot of the video. So they'll they'll embed a video. Um, you know, five-minute video or three-minute video, and I'll go on the shoot with the videographer and I'll ask the question. So, like, when I'm writing the story, I'm thinking about what the videographer needs or what parts of my story could work well for the the video. So I do think about more, like, videos and photographs. I don't think so much about maybe animation or, or, you know, I haven't gotten around to that kind of stuff, but I'm trying to broaden what storytelling is I don't want to be just like a word person, because um, because for the reader it's better if you have. You no, know, some people don't like to read. Some people want a video. Some people like pictures. Some people love stories. You have to hit all these people.
0: You, um, when we were talking back and forth, setting you know in the six months that we were trying to set this up, um, you had heard some of our some of our podcasts. Um, you know um, of, of above the fold. What story? What, what possible story do you think Jeff and I are, are, are saying in this with this podcast? What? How does this story fit? How does this podcast oh, fit no. into any type of story that, that you can see?
1: <laughs> that it should be fun and that there should be um, personality behind what, what people hear and what people are doing. That it should be real, a real interaction. Not like, check the box, here's what the brand represents. We're going to be exactly what the brand represents in a way that's so boring that you want, you won't want to engage with the brand. Like, let's not do that. Let's have personality. Let's take a little bit of a risk around like we're real people. So many brands were afraid of that. And I think it's fine. I'm the brand storyteller that says the personality and the color. All of that is good. You know, you find your audience that way. You find a tribe as Seth Godin likes to say, that's your tribe.
2: That was really nice. You didn't have to be that. Thank you. You didn't have to be that nice. That was very. That was that was that was too
0: nice. (laughs) Thank you. It's my take. You're welcome. Of course, Jeff. (laughs) Um, And actually, what what you mentioned there, talking about tribe, that kind of brings up another thing on your on your site. You you have a great story about how you talked about a community, the importance of kind of having a community around you. And, um, I wanted, I mean, that was, that was, I mean, I know that blog was a little old. It was about, I think, uh, last year or two years ago, something like that. But talk a little bit more about that. I mean, why, what, what type of community are you talking about? Why is that so important?
1: So, I mean, I'm a storyteller who studies a lot of psychology and I, I studied psychology in college and I, I continue to learn about psychology, especially in the way that it interacts with storytelling and storytelling is a way to build community. It's a way to draw people in because people want story as a way to build community. Um, Brands want to build community with stories. So um, I love the psychology of that. Um, So I'm someone that struggles with social anxiety, if you can believe it. Um, I've struggled my whole life. (laughs) No, I've struggled my whole life. Um, And one of the problems that I had was I grew up in a really tough neighborhood in South Boston in the 1970s. There was a lot of crime, a lack of economic opportunity, a lack of educational opportunity, and growing up, I had to isolate myself from a lot of the things happening in my own neighborhood uh, for my own safety, and I did that. But when I got older, like I found, like you can go to college, you can learn, like it, the world can be a safe place and a welcoming place. That was a very good thing for me to learn, but it took a while to change my context because I'd like gone from a kid who crossed the other side of the street. I avoided trouble all the time, so you avoid contact. To so when I got older, I needed community to kind of keep my, my own psychology um, working well. So I found a way to, to combat my own social anxiety was to engage in community, to reach out to people and kind of get out of my own head and create this climate of trust around myself. So even if I'm helping other writers or helping other um, graphic designers or you know creative professionals that I know, like, I, I'll go out of my way to try to help them, but that helps me because it gets me out of, you know, some of the social anxiety that I have. The community is very important to me. And you also access stories through community. It's a great way to access stories and different perspectives and to learn things. Um, I'm a huge advocate of community. You you have no idea.
2: This is taking an interesting turn. I, I kind of want to veer off into with you. When you say you're building communities, like, where physically building these online communities are these in-person communities like meetups how does this happen it's in person it's one-on-one it's sitting across and having a cup of coffee having lunch with someone and kind of
1: sharing you know whether it's vulnerabilities or things are going great whatever's next or whatever's important in your life i want to hear about that and i'll share that with you and when there's opportunities where we can help Mm -hmm. each other let's take advantage of that if i can help you i mean Pretty much all my clients come from referrals from other people that I know. So it's a great way to get client work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously I have to help people in my network too. But it's not like we're exchanging, you know, chits. It's not like I did three things for you. Now you need to do three things. Like It comes from a place where like, you're going to get back what you put in over time. Yeah. So there's a kind of faith in community that I have. Um, and also helps with my anxiety. So that's the main reason I do it.
2: And where do you start with your networking? Uh, I mean, you've uh, you obviously you've got it. Yeah, you know, I, I met Francis at
1: an event where I spoke. Um, I'm very involved in the Boston Content Group. Uh, there's a great leadership team there. Um, I'm involved in the Freelancers Union uh, based in New York. Um, so there's communities everywhere, uh, whether it's online, whether it's face to face. I prefer the face to face because I'm kind of old school. I I grew up before the the internet was really a thing, so um, I'm always kind of pushing real, real communication, face to face. But any way you access it is good.
2: Well, you really don't get the same interaction through any sort of online. Even even though we're sitting here, we've been talking for an hour. I haven't seen any of your your facial expressions, micro expressions, any of that stuff that communicates ninety percent of our language, right? So it's I I kind of agree with you on, on that.
1: Think of storytelling as like people, people's way of transmitting the culture, you know, stories around a fire, you know, uh, like stories are so primal in that way and the way that people relate to each other. So even in our personal lives, stories are important. And I think of stories as a community building exercise too, even for my clients. And they never think of it that way, but I'm really, you know, completely tied into story on, on multiple levels. as You guys can probably see. Um, so it's helped. It's helped with my own life. It's helped in my career. It helps me find business. It helps me like help other people. I mean, it's so important. Uh, this community.
2: Yeah. Have you ever done uh, Toastmasters or anything like that? Where you do uh, audio, audio storytelling? What would that be called? <laughs>
1: no. I mean, I, I do. I do the live storytelling through the Moth, and I do local storytelling events here in Boston couple times a month, you know, get up on stage and you tell a personal story for five minutes. Um, I do kind of improv acting, if you can believe it. I do that. I do a lot of things just for fun and to try to learn. Um, So I'm always like curious and like wanting to explore my own curiosity. Um, And that helps me a lot. That's like the best thing that I do is to be curious and follow my curiosity.
0: Yeah. I can relate to that too. I was going to ask, how does um, improv acting help inspire B2B content writing?
1: A lot, a lot, because it's supportive. The idea of improv acting is you're going to listen to what your partner says, your scene partner, and you're going to take it in and say yes and then develop what they said. So it comes from a position of like sharing and, and, and giving value to them and then building that value together. Um, that's what improv is. It's kind of being positive and building on what's there in, in your scene mate, so in the other person. So whatever the other person has to offer, you build upon that that foundation, um, and that's what you know B two B marketing is about. Like finding what that client who they are, what they need, like listening to them, and then building on top of that and being a partner with them. So I, I think it works pretty well, um, and it's just fun to do. It's just a fun exercise.
0: Jeff, I think you should give up uh, archery and pick up improv acting. <laughs> 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 well, I think
2: we're just we're talking about uh, meditative, meditative types of things in a way building community, community can get you out of your own head. I think anything that gets you out of your own head is a meditative type of activity. So I, it, ultimately, yeah. it seems like that's what we're coming around to.
1: Exactly, exactly. You can be too much in your own head. Even, even brands are too much in their own head, thinking about you know what they can offer. Look at them. Look at the other. Look at the customer. Look at the world and try to fit yourself into that. It's a better place to come from than like, here's our new features. Here's what we're developing. and Our engineers are building cool technology that nobody really wants, but we haven't figured out if it fits with the market yet, but we're like just making it because it's cool. Like that's a mistake. Don't do that.
2: Yeah. Nobody really connects with that type of storyline. I agree. Right. Exactly. It's
1: it's egocentric.
0: I always, um, in the past, we've had a couple larger brands with us at Brafton and, it's always up against the same thing because everything you said, Chuck is right. You know they should be listening to the customer, they should be able to kind of you know be a little bit more ni- more nimble. Um, I do think that there's a, there are brands that then suddenly become too big where they're not able to do that. Like they're, they're almost with up within their own sto- historical story and they can't find a way out of that anymore because that's now who they've been built up to be. And maybe at that point the marketplace has is just not into that story anymore. Or maybe the story's so old or story so, you know, it's been repeated time and time again. Um, do you think there's a way? Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say, do you think there's a way, I mean just you know, just speculating, for a big brand to suddenly break ties with an old story and start to build up a new one?
1: They do Absolutely. That. And the way is the way is to find So really to figure out what customers think of them right now and to kind of understand, like, you know, to do these these kind of field testing around, you know, what is it that customers think of us? What are the associations that customers have with us right now? And collect those associations and put them on a piece of paper and, like, are these the associations we want? Because that's all a brand is, is those associations in the brains of people. And if we don't like them, then we have to tell a different story. Because, like, the story we're telling is we're old and we don't care and we're not changing. And over time, customers walk away from that. So is that the story you want to tell? We let our customers walk away, we don't care, we're not changing. It's a bad story.
2: Yeah, that's that's uh, an arrogance, That'll, that's a but trap. That, that
1: story will yeah. be told from the from the customer to the brand. So the brand has an opportunity to tell a different story to the customer if they choose to tell that story. Otherwise, the customer will tell it to the brand. It's up to the, you know, we'll see what happens.
0: Before we go one couple uh, one last thing for me what has inspired you recently you know uh, what, what book what movie what tv show what what has happened in uh, that that has kind of just hit you be like wow I, I that that just hit me you know that was amazing blah 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 what, what what was that thing
1: so many things i mean i'm constantly on the lookout for creative people who are kind of going their own way and doing their own thing um so i'll look at stand-up comedy i'll, I'll look at tv shows and like people who are like, you know, there's always this tension between the commercial and the creative, you know, not just in marketing, but in any endeavor of human life. It's like the money people are looking at something and the creative people are looking to do something different. So the creative people who stand up and find a way to make things work, like you look at somebody um, like, you know, Bradley Cooper with that movie, A Star is Born with it. the, The ending was so unhappy. And I thought at the end of that movie, like, how much influence does Bradley Cooper have that he he can get away with that ending? And it was the appropriate ending. And obviously it was a remake, but like that was a tough sell in Hollywood where like it has to be happy ending where they get married. Mm. But then he's being true to the creative material. Those are the people that I, that I honor and that I like to celebrate because that's what I want to do as a creative person to kind of square that circle where like it's commercial and it works and you're delivering the KPIs and the, and the, the, the revenue, but you're also doing something creative. So how do we do both? Um, I'm looking for those things. Um, you know, and I read all the books, um, uh, Chip Heath and Dan Heath, The Power of Moments. Um, there's a lot of books about, like, we, we need to choose experience over, like, you know, just more volume, more things. Like, the, the experiences matter. The moments, human moments are what matter. So I'm leaning into that. Um, so, you know... Always reading, always listening to people. Like who has integrity, who's doing things the right way. Like just noticing that is a good place to come from.
0: Jeff, are you yelling that you've never seen A Star Is Born and now you know that it's a, it's got a sad ending?
2: Oh no, spoiler! Oh no, <laughs> no, no, no! I, I, and actually, right. okay. I, I would. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would, You know what? There's there's a time limit on those things. This is like the 18th re, retail on this thing. Um, so anybody that comes to me and says, Hey, don't spoil Game of Thrones season three. It's like, you know what? No, you had, you had your mo, you had your time. You had your chance. It's over. No, I did see it. I did see the new one and it, and it is heart wrenching. Like Jesus with the garage door too. Oh God. It was, it was even gentle. And this is the fun thing about marketers. Like we're the
1: ones who watch that show for like the story. Like I'm the one who was like, you know, where's this going to go? And is this story working for me? And why is this working for me? like. That's the way that I'm built.
2: I, I like to do that.
0: Yeah, I'm 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 with you. I'm with you, Chuck. Jeff, anything else uh, you wanted as the man?
2: Uh, no, I don't I don't think so. I'm now I'm just thinking about Bradley Cooper hanging from a garage door. <laughs> unfortunately, so I, sorry, man. I'm, I'm really not in the mood. <laughs>
1: It's, you know, it may be the right ending, you know? It's really
2: provocative, Jeff.
1: Not everything <laughs> yeah. ends, ends happily. So.
2: Left yeah. an impact. Yeah, definitely. Although I will say the <laughs> scene where he walks up on the stage and, and urinates in his pants, I think that was a little over
0: the top of the story <laughs> talk. I think that was a little <laughs> indulgent. Agreed, me. agreed. Uh, maybe he lost a bet. Maybe he lost a bet. Basically at some point in your career, Cooper, you gotta make that scene happen.
1: Still get his next movie made, you know. They'll still make his next movie. Yeah.
0: Um, Chuck, thank you, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you for waiting six months, man, because we're awful, and uh, I just I'm so happy you hung in there. This was great. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, it was worth it. Thank you for inviting me. (laughs) We'll do this in another 18
0: months. (laughs) It's gonna take us that long. It's gonna take us that long. (laughs) Thanks, Chuck. All right. Thanks again, man.
2: i will see ya.